Hi, my name is Tom Alston. I'm the founder and CEO of Aero Marine Tax Professionals. Here on the Winning Pitch broadcast, I'm going to tell you how it is. I'll be sharing the ins and outs of business management, improving your sales skills, building personal and professional wealth, and balancing it all with your personal and family life, excluding the part about balancing it with your personal life. Don't expect a filter because we're about to wrestle some feathers. Have fun. Welcome to today's version of my podcast, The Winning Pitch. I have as my guest, Coach Jim Johnson, who was an esteemed, highly qualified, very successful basketball coach at the, uh, I think it's the high school level. And then uh, uh, now he's coaching individuals and companies, and I brought him on to inspire you. So, Jim, it's your floor. Take it. Sure. So I... uh... I grew up in an athletic family. I actually uh, played a number of sports. And uh, when I got to high school, uh, basketball became my love. And I was blessed to be able to uh, coach or not coach, but play for my father. That was our high school basketball coach at the high school I attended. And I played for him for three years and uh, had a pretty nice career. In fact, in my mind, I thought it was so good that I was probably going to go to the NBA. And then I... uh, (laughs) I went to college. I played one year at one school. I transferred to get closer to home and uh, ended up not making the team. So that realized that uh, the NBA was probably not going to come calling since I, since I didn't make my college team. Uh, but uh, it was a very humbling part of my life. But fortunately, um, I uh, got straightened out. One part of that was I met a young lady that ended up being my wife. We've been married for 38 years now at school. So she kind of helped me get back. And then I really got into, uh, I became an educator. I was a physical education teacher and a coach for 35 years. I started, uh, my dream was I wanted to be a head coach at the high school level as soon as possible. And my dream came true pretty quickly. I uh, actually, after being an assistant coach for three years, I became a head coach at a high school about 20 minutes from where I grew up. And I thought, you know, I had some winning teams at, with the JV level. I thought I knew everything about coaching. And although this uh, program I took over wasn't very good, in my mind, I thought we we're going to turn it around in the first year. And I did such a wonderful job. We were one and one after our first two games. And then I led that team to 17 consecutive losses. And then the school decided to go in a different direction and let me go. So that was a, a really humbling experience for me. And I, uh, uh, but fortunately, the next year I got a, a break. I didn't know it at the time, but actually, I had a local junior college coach um, ask me to be his assistant, and he ended up getting me back on my feet. And ironically, his name was Bill Van Gundy. And uh, if you follow basketball, his two sons, Jeff and Stan, Stan actually is the head of coach of the New Orleans Pelicans. Uh, when I coached with Coach Van Gundy, Stan was my age, 25, 26 at that time. It was a, a junior or a, a, a division three coach, and Jeff just started as a high school coach. So little did I know that many years later they would both be head coaches in the NBA. But he helped me get back on my feet. But my dream was I really wanted to stay in the high school level, and I got back. I coached at another school a little bit further from my hometown, and then in my late twenties I got a break. I, my dream was to come back and coach in my hometown called Greece, New York, which is a suburb of Rochester. And we uh, have four high schools in our town. When I grew up, we had three. I went to one, and I came back and became a head coach at one of the um, 
the other three schools. And when we took over, the program was in dire straits. They had won two games in the two previous years. And so we had a lot of work to go to do. And fortunately, that's when I really started to study leadership and how to build teams. And and after the first four years, we had only one winning season. And then in my last three years, we actually had three of the best records ever in the school history. We were the number one seed in our postseason tournament. We got to the postseason semifinals three straight years, which the school had never gotten that far. Um, and so we had a pretty good run. But uh, the one of the other high schools in my town, I always thought was the best job. And ironically, after my seventh year at the school of Greece Olympia, Greece Athena opened up and I decided to go for it. And I was offered the job. And there, uh, because their program had had a losing season the year before we got there, they had had some real tradition. They had won a state championship and they had an NBA player play at the school. And so I thought this would be a really good opportunity, and it ended up being. I was there for 20 years, and I, uh, we never had a losing season. We uh, we really had a really good uh, situation. But the one stumbling block in my coaching career, and you being a former coach is so well, is that often coaches are measured by how they do in the postseason. And there I was falling short. We uh, we never made it to our postseason finals. Uh, in fact, after about eight years, we had never even got back to the semifinals after I had taken that one school for three straight years. And then I had something very unique happen to me. I had a young man come into our program. Uh, he tried out for his J- JV team. His name was Jason McElwain, and he was on the autism spectrum. This is back in 2003. And at that point, I had knew very little about autism, but um, my JV coach, because he, he tried out for the JVs, uh, came to me after a couple of days of trials. He said, Jason's not a very good player coach, but man, he's got this big heart. I want to keep him in the program. I said, well, what do you got in mind? He says, I'm going to offer him the team manager's job and let him practice with the team. And that's what he did. And uh, we had a, uh, both teams had good seasons that year. And I was starting to admire Jason because we so into the the team. And although there were some trials and tribulations early in the season, we had built a pretty nice culture and the kids were starting to really embrace. In fact, it used to always warm my heart because Jason would sit on the bench. And of course, I say sit lightly because during the JV game, he gets so emotional. And after the game, one of the varsity players would come out and straight. I'd see him straighten his tie and tuck his shirt in so he could sit on the bench for the varsity game. Well, that season ended, and, and actually, um, we got to the semifinals in the varsity. Now, for the fifth time in my career, we lost in a close game. So, Jason, what well, was really unique about Jason, because I coached for 30 years as a head coach, I rarely would ever have a young man, if they didn't make the team, try out again the next year. But Jason was different. Not only did he want to try out, he would come to all our off-season workouts. And I was getting pretty close to him. I was picking him up at his house some, and it was pretty neat. So Jason tries out for our varsity as a junior, and he doesn't make the team, but I tell him, you know, I'd like to have him serve as our team manager, and he, he really embraced it. In fact, at our first team meeting that year, he got up and he says, Coach, can I say something to the team? I said, sure. He says, uh, Coach, we're going to embrace this mantra. It's called stay focused, and we're going to help you win your first sectional championship. And I said, oh, well, thank you, Jason. And the kids really rallied around him. And we had another good season. We got to the semifinal now for the sixth time in my career. And we lose at the buzzer to our crosstown rival. So we are really devastated. 
So Jason comes back again and tries out for his senior again after going to all our offseason workouts. And when he tries out his senior, I bring him in after a couple of days of tryouts. I said, J-Mac, uh, J-Mac was his nickname, by the way, uh, which I gave to him because I couldn't pronounce his last name. Fortunately, he liked <laughs> it. So, <laughs> so uh, I said, J-Mac, unfortunately, you're not good enough to make the team, but I'd like to offer you the team manager's job. But this time I got a gift for you. And he looked at me and said, well, what's your gift? And I said, well, for senior night, which is our final home game, I'm going to give you a uniform. I'm going to hopefully get you in the game. In fact, I kid people that periodically he would ask me about that uniform. And of course, I define periodically as about every other day. So, <laughs> well, I uh, the season, we were expected to have a really good team. And we started the year off good. We won our first two games in a tournament. And then adversity struck. Uh, we had a, a, a kind of a, a real uh, strife between some of the parents and, and our assistant coach. And it really divided the team. And I, in fact, I wrote a book about it called The Coach and a Miracle, uh, because uh, we'll get into the story in just a minute. So we actually, in the next five games, we uh, really struggled. I thought we'd win all of them, but because we uh, were so divided, we actually lost three of them. So we're going in this Christmas tournament with a record of uh, uh, four and three. And I thought we were going to be seven and oh. And we're playing at this. The whole school is the biggest school in in Rochester. And they were really good that year. And the reason I got in the tournament is because I thought it would be a great game between the two of us, but not the way we were playing. So in the opening round in that Christmas tournament, we won in a close game in the whole school, Fairport High School beat this team in the second game by like 40 points that we had played two weeks earlier and beaten in double overtime. So the next day I brought him in uh, for a short practice. We call that a shoot around because we didn't have school because it was during Christmas break. And I, I shocked him. Normally we get balls out and we do a little practice. We run through some plays and some shooting, but I sat in a bleachers and the game balls out. And I looked him dead in the eye and I said, guys, I don't want to go to the game tonight. And they just looked at me like in shock. And then I said, unless we decide we're going to be united and play together, Fairport's going to beat us by 50 points tonight. But the best thing I did, you know, I've studied leadership for a long time now, is uh, I really became a better listener. And after I shared my little five-minute motivational talk, I said to him, you guys got to be willing to share how we can unite this team. And then they finally started to open up. By the end of the meeting, I could see that there was a little bit of bond. It wasn't a pure panacea, but it was definitely a step in the right direction. And it reflected in our play that night. We actually played a great game and we lost to Fairport in, in overtime. And from there, that really gave us some momentum. And we won eight of our next nine games going into our final home game, which was senior night. And senior night is always a very special night it's where we honor our seniors before the tip off. And I went through 30 of them and they were always very touching to me, but this was profoundly touching because now J-Mac, instead of his white shirt and black tie, which he always wore to the games, he's now donning number 52, which was way too big, but he didn't care. In fact, there was a rumor going around school that he slept in it for two straight nights after I gave it to him. Uh, but anyway, so the game begins and that, night we had a really good student body uh, following and they at the opening tap they start chanting we want J-Mac we want J-Mac I guess just in case I forgot 
And going into the game, because we had really in the season, if we won that game, we had a chance to tie for our division championship. So I certainly want to give our team a chance to win. Number two, although I wanted to get J-Mac in the game, I knew I had to get all the other players in before I could put him in. And the third thing is I want to get Jason with enough time so he could score a basket. I thought if he could score a basket, that's a memory he'll cherish the rest of his life. Well, after three quarters of the game, we got everybody in but Jason. So with just over four minutes to go, I, uh, I pointed to him. He nearly ran out of the court. He was so excited. And then what happened next profoundly touched my heart and soul. I, I'm usually a pretty macho guy. I usually don't cry at basketball games. But what happened when Jason entered the floor, our student body not only gave him a standing ovation, but they showed all these pictures, these placards of Jason's face that one of our parents had made and asked the students to show that if Jason got in the game. Well, Jason and I did not know about this. So it was so overwhelmingly emotion. I sat down, which I really did, and tears started to flow down my face. Jason's now in his first varsity basketball game. First time we get the ball, Jason gets the ball in the right corner behind the three-point arc. He lets a three-pointer go. The crowd stands like an anticipation. It misses by like three feet. It's not even close. And I, I kid people, I know you're not supposed to pray in the public schools, but I was praying, dear God, please help him get one basket. Well, what a great lesson I think Jason shared for all of us to learn is that, you know, one of the things we always talk to our players about is next play. you got to be able to move on, you know, learn from your mistakes, move on, because basketball is such a fast-moving game. And I think for a lot of people, uh, you know, if you fail your first attempt in an embarrassing way, you're not going to do it again. But that wasn't Jason. He just shrugged it off. So the next possession, we actually, he we get the ball down the floor and he gets a much closer shot from about 10 feet. And this time I got to add a little drama because it gets closer. It hits the backboard, hits the rim and falls off. And the crowd groans. I'm thinking, all right, we're getting closer. God's starting to listen. And then our la- third possession, Jason this time gets it from the uh, right wing behind the arc again. And he lets go a three-pointer. And this time, magic. It goes in. The place just explodes. I'm thinking to myself, God must be a basketball fan. Not only has Jason scored, he's, but he's got a three-pointer. It can't, be, it can't get any better than this, right? Wrong. For the next three minutes, Jason turns into his boyhood idol, the late, great Kobe Bryant. And he starts making shots after shot. And I'm going to interject one thing and then I'll show you, I'll tell you how the game ends is that he's making all these shots. And I want to fast forward four months later after that game, and then I'll come back and finish the story. Jason is, is out in California at the ESPYs. He's one of the four finalists for the greatest sports moment of the year in 2006. And one of the four finalists is who? His idol, Kobe Bryant. Kobe had scored 81 points in an NBA game that year, and he actually beat Kobe out for the ESPY. So that was just a little sidelight. So, anyways, Jason starts making all these baskets, and he. Uh, so, with the two things I'll never forget is with one minute to go in, in the game. Uh, he by this point, I know many. No, no, I had no idea how many points he has, but he had a bunch of threes and I get a tap on my shoulder and I'm shocked. I look behind me and it's J-Mac's mother and she's bawling her eyes out and she whispers in my ear, coach, this is the best gift you could ever give him, my son. What would you have done? Of course, I cried harder. Then uh, the, the game ends. It's like out of a Hollywood movie. Um, with about eight seconds to go, our opponent spends support. And I want to give kudos to their team and their coach. They were great sports that night. They score a basket. 
and our player takes it out of bounds and normally he throws it right to our point guard, but for whatever reason, he throws it right to J-Max. So J-Max dribbling down the court and I look up and I'm thinking Spencer Bush is going to let him go in and make a layup. Oh no. He pulls up like two feet behind the arc. I'm thinking, Jason, don't shoot for that. It's way too far. He launches this rainbow swish. As the buzzer goes off, I look over, our student body is flying on the floor, our players are running on the floor. And I'll never forget this because Jason's parents have an interesting dynamic. His dad is six foot six, and his mom is five foot two. And I see this little bitty lady bobbing through the entire crowd to get to Jason. She gives him a hug. And he liked that for a moment. Then our players put him up on their shoulders. At this point, I have no idea, Tom, how many points he has. And he's got the game ball over his head like this. And our public address announcer comes on and says the leading scorer for the Trojans, our nickname, J-Mac with 20 points. So he scored 20 points in less than four minutes. In fact, I kid people that I started calculating. I'm thinking if he played the whole game, he scored 160 points, which is pretty good. It was just crazy. And um, But the couple of lessons that I really learned from that is because we had had so much strife. I, I knew the kids did like Jason, but I wasn't sure how they would respond. And I never asked them to pass them the ball, but what was so cool, I call it the essence of teamwork, is they shined the light on Jason. Those last four minutes, Jason was the only one to shoot. In fact, I still kid Jason. I still see him all the time. I'm still looking for your first assist. He never passed the ball once. And then the other thing that I think was great in showing about teamwork was the fact that Jason had to now go back because there was a rule that you had to be in six regular season games to be on our postseason roster. So Jason knew up front that that was his one time and that he was going to go back as team manager, yet he supported us more than ever. And three weeks later, before a crowd of a sold-out arena, normally basketball is not huge around here in my area, so normally for a championship game, we'll get three or 4,000. If we walk in the arena that night, there's 11,000 people there. It's just because it's what had happened is I really felt I had done it for all the reason, right reasons. We had no media attention there. And when I, the only responsibility I had the media after that game was to call them the score. And I told them that Jason scored 20 points. And I thought it would get a big deal in the newspaper, and it didn't. But what I didn't know is the next day, Jason's speech pathologist at school, he had never come to a game, but he worked with Jason for four years. He was so touched by the game that he called one of our local TV stations. And they came in and did a story about it. And by the end of that weekend, we had CBS Evening News call and it, 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 we had ESPN and we, had, we were on Good Morning America. It was just crazy. And of course, we're trying to prepare for this sectional tournament that three weeks later, three and a half about weeks later after that game, we won our first sectional championship. And I remember kids the next day at school after the JMAC game coming up to me because I was showing it in my class and kids were coming out and go, Coach, this is going to get on ESPN. I said, ESPN? And we got a headline in our local newspaper. But ironically, for our championship game, we had gotten so much media attention. Actually, ESPN was at our game and actually showed highlights on SportsCenter of our championship game. That's how uh, crazy it got uh, through that. So we were sure. talking about parents in school. Yeah. My, if... I had been you, and you had, you had come off the floor after that game. I would have expected one of our parents to say, see, I told you, you should have been playing it for the last three years. <laughs> now, back to you. 
No, it's a, it's a good point. I did get teased, uh, actually, uh, to kind of piggyback what you said, uh, about a week later on TNT, uh, Charles Barkley, they brought up the story, and he says, I would have had that coach fired. He should have played that guy all the time. <laughs> so, uh, in fact, they got it on my uh, in our local newspaper. It was a quote from Charles Barkley, and one of my colleagues cut it out and, and put it above my desk just to keep me humble for the rest of my career. And then uh, the neat thing is Jason and I, uh, we stayed fairly close. Uh, you know, we ended up doing a lot of things and we still do some speaking and stuff together. Uh, but um, he actually left, he graduated from high school and he went on to work. He, he didn't go to college. He had a IEP diploma. But two years later, he actually came back to me, said, coach, I really missed the program. Can I come back and help out? And, and so the last nine years of my coaching career, he actually helped me and he would come to Pratt. In fact, it was funny because, you know, I'd go speak someplace in the country. They say, do you still see him? And I start laughing. They go, why are you laughing? I said, I see him every single day. And if I don't, he texts me like 10 times a day because uh, he was so into basketball. And as I tease people, you know, we, that was the first year we ever won a championship. And then in my last 10 years, we ended up winning six championships. So uh, I kind of opened and that was kind of my four minute mile. And Jason was on the bench for five of those. So it was pretty cool. And uh, just a little uh, motivation for everybody. Jason was actually quite small. Um, I was wondering if he, he was going to grow because his dad is six foot six, but his mom's five foot two. And in that game, he was like five, nine, 125 pounds. He's now six one, about 175 pounds. So he, he's really put on, uh, he grew about five inches and he also uh, really got into running and weightlifting and and he was a runner in high school, but he was very average. And now he's run, I think, a dozen marathons, and he's broken three hours in the Boston Marathon. So he's become a quite an accomplished runner as well. So he he never ceases to amaze me with uh, what he does in his life. So, awesome. Yeah. So what what motivated you, and where did it happen in your in your in your schooling period, or younger than that, or older than that? To become the kind of coach that you have become, was there an incident or some something that would, you got from your parents or your dad or your mom? Well, my dad was definitely probably my first role model in coaching. He was much more composed than I was early in my career. I was pretty emotional, uh, but you know, I started to really, you know, when I I think a, a real turning point was when I lost that coaching job early in my career. Because it really it, it motivated me in two things. One, I wanted to prove that that school was wrong for letting me go. And two, it made me realize, because I was pretty cocky. You know, here I was a head coach at 25, and I'm thinking I know everything. And I realized that I had a lot to learn. And I became that became my study of leadership. And actually, uh, I've read well over a thousand books on success, teamwork, leadership now. But one book that really opened my eyes many years ago was uh, Dr. Covey's book, The Seven Habits. And uh, one of the things that I really got out of that book was understanding your why, your, your, your mission statement. And when I got clarity about that, I became a much better coach because I understood who I was and, and my players understood you know, what I stood for and that kind of thing. And I think that was a really helpful from that perspective. So what is your why? So my why, my personal mission statement is to be an outstanding role model that makes a positive difference in the world by helping others make their dreams come true. And so what I did is I really started to think about that I wanted to be someone that that people would look at as a great role model. So I, I was became much more cognizant of that. And secondly, I, I really became someone that wanted to help others and serve others and find ways to 
make people better. Um, you know, I, I really took a lot of pride in my own personal growth and I really wanted to help others grow uh, as well. So where did that come from? I, you know what? I think that came from a, a lot of uh, study, observation. And, uh, you know, like one of my guys that I studied in coaching, you know, by reading a lot about him and, you know, listening to some of his interviews was John Wooden. And, you know, he just seemed like, um, you know, first of all, he was very controlled, but he was very, you know, like just things like if you plan to fail, you fail the plan. I mean, he had just so many little great little slogans or quotes that I picked up. And the one thing that, um, you know, the more I listened to a lot of his former players and on, um, you know, the fact that he was such a great model for them and, you know, he's a great family person. He was a guy that uh, they, they just respected. And that was something as I started to study, you know, coaches and leaders, I really wanted to be someone that they look to as a model and someone that they could respect because I, I really wanted to live a life of integrity. So as you went through this leadership training by reading and self-study, mm -hmm. what did you discover was the biggest flaw in your style prior to that? Well, you know, it's a great question. Uh, and one of the things that I do talk about, you know, I mentioned it took me a long time before we won our first championship. And one of the things that I realized, because I would do a lot of reflecting after the season, I go, because, um, you know, early in my career, I wanted to blame everybody else. You know, and then as my career got, I was like, you know what, if we don't do well, it's my fault. And I, when I started to really embrace that concept that, you know what, if, if, we're, if we do well, it's the players uh, that are it. And if we do bad, it was my fault. And when I started to embrace that, the player, and they knew I had their back. And so because of the fact that I took responsibility, to answer your question specifically, is that I really felt I was a really good role model for my players and the fact that I, um, you know, I was doing mostly the right things. But the, here's the where I really was slipping, and I didn't realize it, and it really struck me the year before Jason's senior year because we lost in this heartbreaker in, in, uh, at the buzzer. But I realized what I was doing in those pressure games, I would lose control emotionally, and I couldn't handle the adversity and what do you think was happening in my team? They also didn't handle it. So one of the things that I uh, I really made a pact with myself, and especially the fact that Jason Senior, that first half of the year was as difficult as I've ever had in coaching. We had so much division amongst our team. But I realized that no matter what, I had to be the rock. I had to be under control. And I did such a much better job in that um uh, postseason tournament. In fact, in the semifinals and the finals, in the semifinals, we actually were ahead by 10 points in the third quarter and we blew the entire league. We we're actually losing in the fourth quarter. And the old Jim Johnson would have lost it. This new Jim Johnson said, you know what, if I'm going to be a model, when things go bad, I've got to be able to handle it in a better way. And the kids responded. We actually rarely won the game. And then the championship game, here we are, we're getting all this media attention. And, you know, we had played that team that we uh, played in the championship game twice during the year. We had split. So we had each won a game. So I knew, you know, it should be a good game, right? We start the game that we're down 13 to two. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. And so, but again, I just did a much better job of controlling myself. And the kids responded to that. And, you know, we ended up rallying and then we won the game, lightning in the game. And 
what, what I really learned from that is how the importance of how you would handle adversity as a leader is going to trickle down either in a good way or a bad way. And they, you know what, the players really then responded because, you know, then we ended up winning six of those championships. And, you know, we ended up making the finals eight times in my last 11 years after never making it in my first 20. So it was, um, you know, with that run, they realized that, um, you know, that, you know, this guy knows what he's doing. He's, he's going to have their backs. So we're going to keep them together. He's not going to lose control. And, uh, you know, I think that that was a really important lesson for me to, to learn. You know, you've actually reminded me of the last couple of years that I stayed coaching varsity baseball. I was an assistant coach to a guy who's very successful. We're still great friends. I've been retired from coaching baseball now since 2017. But he was a fiery guy. And there were, all I did during the games, if he started to lose control, I'd remind him, I says, if you want these guys to lose, you keep that up. Because yeah. the way that you go is the way that they'll go. You start right. complaining to the umpires, they're going to all start complaining to the umpires. Yeah. You start mumbling at each other. I mean, it just it, it just breaks down. It's just a virus, and you have to learn to control that. Right. And I remember the first couple of years I was coaching with him that, you know, we were friends, but you you try talking to me during a game, you know, I wouldn't talk to you. Right. And I thought, well, maybe I, you know, he's been successful. I've never been a, 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 a section champion, as it's called here. And, you know, he, he listened and he, you know, he was successful 95% of the time, but, you know, it's, you have to remember, as you've stated, that you're being the role model. You're the one who's showing them the way. Right. They'll gravitate to your bad habits quicker than they'll gravitate to your good habits. And and it just takes more time, but I I understood that. And, and I really, I run my company that way. I never, ever lose control. In fact, I've only lost control in this company one time, and it was because Xfinity couldn't figure out a way to keep my internet and my phone system running. And so I, it's hard for me to say anything nice about them, but <laughs> I don't know how to control that. That's not one of the controllable pieces that I should learn how to control the controllable. Right. But, you know, it's it, it it's a tough world. It's a tough world. And you just have to realize that you know, you're doing something. I, from my philosophy, I knew I was doing something that was making that occur for me. And right. maybe I just needed to needed to. Maybe I had some pressure build up, and I needed to scream and yell. But <laughs> it it didn't have a good effect on my employees. So I, you know, after about a day or two, you know, it was it was over with. Right. And my wife is. Well, my wife is really fire. I mean. She's the kind of person that, you know, she'd probably like to get out and fight with everybody if you do anything that crosses crosses any one of her lines that are not supposed to be crossed. And she was really uncomfortable when I was doing that. So I always told her, well, I only did it to show you what you look like. (laughs) She knows it's a lie, but, you know, sometimes you you have to make the best of it. Right. I got to tell you, my, it was kind of the opposite with me because I'm I'm a pretty fiery guy. I have calmed it down over the years, but my wife uh, would always give me a critique after the game. <laughs> so she was much more controlled than I was. Let's put it that way. So. Well, sometimes that's all it takes. You know, yep. you've got to be the, yep. you know, you have to be the person that allows the the emotions to flow through as opposed to sticking on something. Because when they stick on something and they, now you've got, two opposing forces and they're just going to get stronger and it's just going to build up even more and more. Right. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So thank you for telling me about your basketball journey. Now tell me about your journey to work, what you're doing now and how you got there. 
Sure. So, well, you know, because I was really big into my personal growth probably the last 25 years of my life. And and so I started as I started to have more success and, you know, I was trying to, you know, I helped some of my colleagues. So I, I started to speak a little bit like at basketball clinics and that kind of thing. And I was trying to figure out, you know, if I could do something like, cause I, I started to follow like, you know, some of the big names like, uh, you know, um, Tony Robbins and Zig Ziglar and Jim Rohn. And, you know, I was listening to those guys a lot and I was like, you know what, I'm, maybe I can do something like that. Well, then the JMAC game all of a sudden opened some doors for me. People started to call and said, Hey, can you tell us about that story? And uh, so I, you know, I started to do a little traveling and I was, you know, doing a story and I really had no idea, you know, how to be a speaker. And, uh, but I, you know, I started to learn some things. I, I had some natural ability because I was, you know, public speaking every day with my teaching and coaching. Uh, but it's definitely, you know, it's a different profession. And then, and actually, a guy gave me, uh, I was speaking at an event about a year and a half after the JMAC game. And this guy came out after the, my talk and he said, you know, coach, you got a lot of potential to be a great speaker. And I said, oh, thank you. And he says, you should join the National Speakers Association. And I looked at him. I said, what's that? Because <laughs> I was pretty clueless. I had no idea. And that was actually a great bit of advice. I uh, actually, uh, when I got back home, I investigated and uh, I ended up joining and uh, I've been going to their conference for over a decade now, and uh, that's been very helpful. I've learned a lot. I, I have a couple of mastermind groups with, with fellow speakers that we speak every month, and, uh, uh, and I've learned a lot about you know, all the aspects of speaking, from the business aspect to platform skills and everything, you know, social media and all the other things on that. So, uh, so that, that's been kind of a fascinating journey for me with uh, – uh, you know, I, my brand is, I'm an, I call myself an inspirational leader. So I, I do like a, a motivational, inspirational talk about the JMAC story. I also do a presentation on seven keys to be a great leader. And then I have another presentation on building championship teams. And, you know, I, I do a, a goal setting workshop and I have a book and I'm actually working on a second book because I, I leadership is one of my passions. Uh, I have a lady that uh, works with me and she's been on me for years to, to write a leadership book. So uh, when the pandemic hit, I said, you know what, if I'm going to ever do it, I'm going to do it. So I, I actually team with a college professor here and we are, we're writing a book for young and emerging leaders. So we started about a couple months ago and we're hoping to want to get it completed by the end of this year. So, so, uh, so that's what I'm working on. And the other so thing has, has the COVID really reduced your speaking? It, it has. I, I, uh, what happened, Tom, is that I, uh, you know, when COVID first struck, I, I didn't, you know, I thought it would go away pretty quick. <laughs> and then a little bit, I know that I was wrong on that. Uh, but so, you know, I, I love live events. I mean, you know, and I've been able to travel around the country and, and uh, you know, I, I enjoy, you know, speaking, inspiring and helping people with tangible skills to help them in their lives and their leadership and building teams. And, um, when, when they stopped all these live events, I'm like, I'm, you know, I wasn't sure I was going to stay in it um, because I, that's what I'd like to do. But the more I thought about it, I, uh, I said, you know what, I believe I have a good message for people and I think I can help people. So I, I want to stay in the game. And so I, but I got to admit, it was something that I did not pivot quickly. I know um, some speaker friends of mine that pivoted way quicker than I did and, 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 you know, ended up still having a pretty good 2020 where uh, I did not. I mean, I ended up probably doing 10 
virtual presentations, uh, but a few of them complimentary because I didn't really do virtual presentations. So I had to learn, you know, all those different things. And, uh, uh, but now, you know, I've, uh, I'm working on uh, an updated video with a combination of live and virtual. And, you know, I hope they have that finished in two weeks. And, uh, um, you know, I'm, and that's what I'm doing now. I'm doing virtual presentations. I, I believe, you know, we're going to start to see live events, I'm guessing, the second half of this year or definitely into 2022. But um, so, uh, but, you know, I weathered the storm. And uh, I guess the good news for me, opposed uh, to, I guess, a lot of people is that, um, and you being in the in the financial world, I guess you appreciate that. I, I, uh, I woke up in my early 30s with a net worth of under zero, and I realized that I better start um, uh, understanding some finances in my world. And actually, it was a, a Jim Rohn quote that hit me. Um, he's he uh, said that if you want to be wealthy, you should study wealth. And as simple as that comment was, it hit me between the eyes because I'm like. Oh my God, I know nothing about wealth building. And fortunately, I convinced my wife and we started to, to save way better and, and you know understand how to have a financial plan. And uh fortunately, uh, you know, we're financially pretty well off. And you know, both both of us also were teachers, so we have pensions. So so I was able to weather the storm because uh I did, you know, have a, a good nest egg and that kind of thing. Uh, uh, whereas last year, if 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 I would have had to rely on my speaking money, it would not have been a good year. <laughs> We'd have been eating a lot of McDonald's. Uh, but fortunately, uh, the good news is is that speaking, as much as I love it, is not, is not something I have to do to you know to make a living. Fortunately, so awesome, awesome. Mm-hmm. So, what is the biggest lesson that you learned as a result of the period of time to now? From I think it was around the twentieth of March that this. The, the lockdown started to occur? Well, it, it's a lesson that I knew, but I didn't handle well early. And that was and something I always go back and talk to my wife a lot about because she's getting frustrated right now um, because, you know, I mentioned to you before we went on that my, we have only one child and he lives in California. And we usually go out there and she has a sister that lives in California as well. So we usually go out a couple times a year and then he comes home usually once a year, usually at Christmas. And we haven't seen them, um, you know, in over a year now. So, uh, but the one thing that, that it's, I keep telling her and I keep telling myself is if we want to be, have a good life, we have to be exceptional in things you can control. And we have no control over COVID. So, uh, you know, and then yeah, I guess the second thing is just the ability to be adaptable. And, you know, like for me, I mean, I'm, if you just said to me, uh, Jim, you, to stay in full-time speaking, you're going to have to be a virtual speaker. I would have said, no, Tom, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> uh, but then, you know what? You realize that, you know what? If that's, uh, you got to find a way. Uh, and, that, and so that's a way that I can stay in it right now. And uh, so, you know, I've made adjustments. In fact, I, I just uh, updated uh, my office where I do my speaking. You know, I've, I'm, I've just got a TV screen. And, you know, so we're upgrading everything so it can be uh you know even a better uh you know presentation so uh, what's, but, the, what's the biggest problem that you encounter shifting from live speaking to a group to doing where you're talking into a camera and you've got no live audience what's the biggest thing for you the biggest, the biggest thing problem? is the biggest is is the energy from the people you know like uh, i've gotten to the point because i've been speaking for quite a while now i'm probably almost 15 years now so i, I know you know, stories that can impact people so you can see it on their faces, but, you know, it's really hard in Zoom. 
you also, you know, I know some of like the little stories that I'm going to get laughs out of. But, you, you know, so at Zoom, sometimes I can see their smiles, but you can't, you don't feel the energy. And, and so, and the other thing is just weird is the fact that you are talking into this camera, you know, in, in a room. <laughs> you know, so it's like, uh, it's just you. And, you know, I, I, I have a couple of guys I hire part-time to come in when I do a presentation. So they help me with some of the technology piece of it. But, you know, basically it's just, uh, it's just strange. I've gotten to the point where I've gotten much more comfortable and I, you know, I know I have to bring the energy and I have gotten some nice compliments from some of the clients I've worked with recently, but early on that was a struggle. Cause it, you know, I mean, and the other thing is just, I mean, it's nice to be able to talk to people on zoom where you can see them, but there's nothing like to me, you know, where I I'd much rather have lunch with you and, you know, and yeah. get to, you know, I mean, to me, that's, that part I, I really uh, I miss, and I'm always yeah, there, gonna miss. There definitely is something about that third dimension because we're right now we're in just two dimensions, and I don't know what it is. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you completely. It's just you know we have to. It, it's an adaptation process. Yeah. What What is the thing that you did to be able to bring your energy up to the level where you were more comfortable with it and felt it was communicating better? And I'm talking about doing Zoom calls. Well, the, the, at first, you know what I think part of the struggle was early on is because uh, I've never really understood a lot about technology. So I was always more concerned, like, you know, is it not going to work? Uh, you know, that kind of thing. And as I gained more confidence, and, and certainly I'm not a technology wizard, but I'm, I, you know, I'm much more confident and clearer on how a lot of these things work. And because now I'm confident, because I've done, you know, hundreds of presentations. And so it wasn't that I couldn't do the presentation. It was just the fact, the manner that making sure that, you know, everything was working. So I wasn't worrying so much about, you know, uh, is, is the technology going to work or not work, you know, that kind of thing. And once I gained that confidence, then it was like, hey, you know, you just got to be you, you know, you've done hundreds of presentations. And and then the nice thing, you know, I mean, most of my presentations, I do uh, talk about the JMAX story because it's my signature story and people don't want to hear it. And people say, do you get tired of talking? And I said, no, you know, that without a doubt was the greatest thing that ever happened in my coaching career. I mean, I mean, I, w- I was fortunate to have over 400 victories as a coach and we won numerous championships and nothing ever touched that night. It was just, I mean, I was numb for like a whole week. It was just, I mean, to see this young man that had dreamed of playing a game and then of course, you know, doing what he did. And a little sidelight is kind of funny is that people say, were they letting him score? And I said, well, you know, they weren't like right in his face, but to give me an idea of, you know, like to me, you know, I'm a believer in God and what people believe in that's up to them. But is that, I mean, there's, to me, there was a higher power looking over him because I'll give you one great example. One possession, he shoots a three and he misses it. And there's a long rebound in our, one of his teammates grabs it and turns and basically just kind of hands it off to Jason. And it was the only time that Spencer, the team we played that night, really let him go. He dribbled in. He had a wide open layup. No one around him, and he missed it. So you think about that. He, he had seven baskets. Six of them were three-pointers. And his other basket, his foot was on the line. So he was literally two inches from seven threes, which would have at that time broken our school record for threes in a game. 
And he would have done it in less than four minutes. Yet he, the easiest shot he had all night, he, he missed the wide open layup. So, you know, explain but, that but, one. But that happens in real life every day. As soon as you take the pressure, oh, yeah. all of a sudden, yeah. normal people who are fully capable of doing amazing things can't tie the shoes. And right. Yeah. yeah. How old are you, Jim? I'm 61. Oh, I'm I'm going to be 73 in a couple of weeks. So, well, you look great. Thank you, thank you. I'll, I'll give you your five bucks off camera. <laughs> you know, I've enjoyed the hell out of this run, and you know, and probably around the age of 70, my wife is 17 years younger than me, and she always tells me you're only as old as you think you are. And one day she looked me straight in the eye and says, "You're going to leave to be 150." <laughs> I accepted that and started to look at the fact that I've got another 75 years to go. Yeah. I was amazed how much it shifted my viewpoint about the way that I was doing things and the planning I was right. doing for the company. Right. And then probably about half, well, in the middle of June, I hate probably because it's such a lousy word. She said to me, I don't want to run the company if you, if you after you're gone. So then I had to shift kind of my, my you know, I'm constantly pivoting based on my viewpoint. And obviously, I'm deeply, deeply, deeply in love with my wife. So when she says she wants to go someplace, it's my job to figure out a way to get there and, and right. making her happy. So, you know, it's, uh, you know, I, I don't, this is your time. I don't want to get off. on No, that. no, it's fine. So if you had one thing to say to every in, inhabitant of this planet, all 7 billion of them at one time, what would it be? Can I give you two? Uh, you can give me as many as you want. <laughs> Well, I think the first one is, uh, I've already said this, but I, I do want to say it again, is I think you really got to have clarity of who you are, your why. And, you know, I really encourage people, um, you know, to develop their own personal mission statement so they have clarity. Because I think when you really understand who you are, and then obviously trying to live that, um, because one of the things when I talk to companies, you know, it's great to have, you know, like your 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 business mission statement or your team mission statement on the wall. But what I really want to know is, you know, does everybody know it and are they living it? Uh, you know, and that's what I talk about with, you know, I mean, certainly I'm far from a perfect person, but I know when I had that clarity about what the type of person I wanted to be on a daily basis, it really made me a much better person, a much better leader, a much, much better husband, friend, you know, all the way, you know, family member all the way down. And the second thing is, I, I just really want to uh, encourage everybody to be a go giver and respect all people. And I, you know, I think we had a really tough last year, a lot of division. And uh, you know what? I, I'm okay. I I disagree all the time with a lot of different people, but I I always want to re be respected and respect other people. And I I, I just really want to reemphasize that you know to treat people with the respect. Um, I think it just makes a better world for all. So you gave me three. I gave, I, gave you, I gave you the opportunity to give me 20 shots and you only took three. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think those are good messages for anybody trying to do anything. And I really, I'm with you all the way, brother. So other than the book, the one book that you told me about, give me your top three. Ooh, that's a great question. I'll, I'll uh, Okay, so I'm going to give you I, a book that I read recently called Atomic Habits by James Clear uh, was really good. I really enjoyed that. And then I, uh, there's a guy that uh, died. He was a professor. Um, his name was Randy Pausch. I've got the book. Give me five seconds because I got two books that I want to show you. All right. So this book called The Last Lecture by uh, Randy Pausch. 
was a really, really cool book. Um, this guy was a college professor. He was well-loved. He was at Carnegie Mellon, and he gets diagnosed with cancer. And uh, it's uh, terminal, has about a year to live, and he, it's basically that book, and it's really a great life lesson. And then I love, uh, like, John Maxwell. I read a number of his books. But the other book that really, uh, and it's probably, I think it was probably a pretty good uh, seller. It was a New York Times bestseller. It's called The Seasons of Life. And it was actually um, written by this guy named Jeffrey Marks. And it's about a story about um, Joe Erleman. Was, he was a, uh, played at Syracuse, which is about an hour and a half for me, and then played in the NFL for quite a while. And, but the book is about he came back and he volunteered or uh, he was assistant coach. He was not the head coach. I think he was a volunteer coach, in fact, of a football team. And just the lessons he tried to teach his, uh, the players on the team day in and day out. I, I've read that book uh, a few times because it's just really, really powerful. Uh, you know, if you're going to nail me down, uh, those would be a couple that jump right out to me. But I, I've read so many good books. I mean, uh, it, it's a topic I could talk over in length about. So, Yeah, my favorite book is right over my shoulder here. It's called... The Ten Actual... You know, I've heard of it. I've never read it. So... Get a copy. Get a okay. copy. It's it's uh, it's an amazing viewpoint on life and becoming successful. And and I listened to it. And Grant Cardone, who is the author, is such a charismatic guy. Yeah. That I connected with him instantly. And now we've become good friends. I'm an investor with him in a bunch of multi-level properties. I'm an investor. Oh, cool in some other programs that he has. And, and, you know, I consider him my little brother cause he's 62 years old. Okay. And uh, yeah. ironically, I just listened to a podcast. He was on Lewis Ho's uh, podcast and, uh, Lewis House? Uh, yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Him and, him and Lewis have been together for, Oh, I want to say five years or so. And, and okay. it's fun yeah. to watch them because they, they came together as people who had common products or services, and then they really both help each other a lot. So okay. I strongly suggest that. In fact, Grant's got seven or eight books out now. Just type in his name, Grant Cardone. Yeah. And, you know, if you like, do you like to listen to books? You know, I have listened to books in my car. I become a huge, because uh, uh, in the pandemic, I, I was, you know, I've always been an exercise guy. Um, so I, uh, I always exercise, but now because I, I need to get out of the house, I, uh, I've been doing a walk even through, like we had a snowstorm today and I still walk through it. So I, I, but I always listen to a podcast. So I, I've become a, a podcast junkie the last like nine months. I've listened to probably an hour to two hours of podcasts almost every single day. So I get up every morning and walk for an hour. I try to get in 5,000 steps. Okay. And I'm constantly, he has an online university, which I absolutely love. It's okay. really, really helps businesses and training. And I, I listen to his webinars over and over and over again, because I know it's going to take times over equal certainty. And I know it's going to take a while. I didn't hear that the first time. Well, about the 10th or the 12th time, you start to really understand it to where right. it starts to really make sense. And when I find myself speaking it, I know I've listened. I've gotten close to listening to it enough, and I only have another hundred more times to go. And I'm <laughs> yeah. sure, being a basketball coach, you totally understand. That. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So we're we're reaching the end of our hour. And yep. is there is there anything that you felt like you've left on the table, or you know, have, a play that you haven't put into this game? 
You know what, if, if you, uh, it would take me about two or three minutes, but if you want, I could go through my seven leadership keys very quickly. If you want to share that. Do it. No. It's all yours. All right. And, so, and it, uh, this is a podcast. So if you go over a few minutes, there's no harm. Okay. This is basically taking ideas from everybody else and then practicing them and, and putting it in my own thing. You mean you're just a coach? <laughs> yes. So everything I, we know we stole from somebody else. Uh, so, uh, that, that, that you, you understand. So I, uh, but, uh, you know, and then you put your like your own little terminology to whatever it is. But the first one I talk about is clarifying your vision, which we've already talked about understanding who you are. You got to lead yourself first, personal mission, and then developing a team or business mission, depending on what you have. Number two, which is probably the most important, is building trust. And uh, the one thing when I talk to uh, leaders and, you know, is that Pretty much everyone would agree that you. It's hard to run a good team if you don't have trust. But it, what uh, what I talked to him about is: Do you actually have a plan to build trust? Because we were pretty really intentional when I took over programs that how we were going to build trust amongst our staff and our team on a consistent basis. And we talk about three things. One is that we wanted to tell each other the truth, so everything was based on the truth. Number two is that we were going to be authentic with each other and be willing to admit when we were wrong, be vulnerable. And, and the third thing is, is that we were going to catch people doing right more than we were going to catch people doing wrong. And that's how we really focused on building trust. The third key is what I call creating the edge. And creating the edge is I really believe uh, great leaders are always trying to find an edge for their team. And, and that was something that I was always trying to figure out. And, and the one thing that, you know, we've all heard about this, but we actually taught our players how to set goals and we would monitor their goals and, um, you know, something you hear about a lot, but I, I don't think people really pay attention to it closely enough. And one of the keys, I think, is that as a leader, it's very important, I think, that you know your team members' individual goals and how they fit into the team goals. Because if there's a conflict there, you've got an issue. Number four is being an effective communicator. And uh, the biggest thing I mentioned a little bit when I was going through with it, my team, JMAC senior year, is uh, I really became a much better listener. And like um, I started to have uh, uh, not only players meetings, but we would have captains meetings. And at the captains meetings, I basically would just come in and ask three or four questions and I would sit and listen. So I really wanted to get feedback. The other thing, um, you mentioned about your wife, but one of the things I started to do way better the second half of my career is listening to my assistants. I used to tell my assistants that you just keep feeding me ideas. And you know what? And sometimes I'm going to tell you they're bad ideas and we're not going to go with them, or I'll tell you the reason why, but I, you got to keep feeding me ideas. And they really bought into that and helped us immensely in building that team. The fifth key I mentioned earlier is lead by example. And one of the things I always talk to our players about is you are always on stage. And I gave that illustration about that I was on stage in those postseasons uh, when we were losing because I wasn't handling pressure situations well. It affected our team. The sixth one is what my leadership prof, uh, leadership philosophy, which is called leave a profit. And basically our concept is everything that we touch, we want to get better and not worse. And I, I give an illustration. When we used to go to uh, on the road to our opponent, we were going into their locker room. And I would usually walk in first. And if I saw like a piece of garbage on the floor, I would pick it up. And because I wanted to teach our guys that even though we didn't leave it there, that, you know, we're going to make things better 
as opposed. And just simple things like that, like picking up a locker room, I think just grows to manifest what you really want is, you know, to have a successful team that represents you in a positive way. But it starts with those small attention to detail. And then the last one is servant leadership, which I really believe is something that I think the best leaders are servant leaders. And and I think one of the things that people get confused in servant leadership is they think it's soft leadership, you know, that and no, I, I believe servant leaderships understand they have standards. Um, they have a big uh, standards and they expect high things out of their people, but they also teach them how to be leaders and they also are willing to listen to them. And I think when you build that concept where you're uh, training other leaders, then you got something really good. And that's why I think servant leadership, the essence of it is. Awesome. Well, I, I'm glad to hear that because the thing that I build my organization on are the things that I call my core values. The top yes. one is service, ethics. Oh, now here, here I am going to make a fool out of myself. Accountability, team work, results, and courage. Mm-hmm. And that, we actually introduce that to people during the interview process. We give mm-hmm. them uh, all of those things and we have them come back at a second interview with what their definitions and how they think that applies because we want to introduce, those are the pillars that hold up our organization. Mm-hmm. And one thing about a core values, it can't be something that you're not willing to fire somebody over. Right. You, these are, these are, our, they're not negotiable. You yes. Know, you can't, you can't, and you cannot only get, you can't give us five. There's six. We need all six from you every day. Right. And as I was listening point. to you do, I was listening to you talk about those things. That's, that sounds like core values to me. Yeah. That, you know, that's really what it is, is, is that, you know, having clarity of, uh, it's exactly what I call them with our players, that there are certain things are non-negotiables. These are part of our culture. Because I think one of the things I, I, I talk to coaches, but I talk to business leaders as well. I think people uh, don't realize how important it is that you have clarity on your values, your core values, what you believe in, and how you're picking your team. Uh, Because I think one of the things, like, uh, you know, like for us in basketball, you know, talent is something we consider. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm not going to put John Jones has never picked up a basketball on our basketball team because he's a good person. Okay. I understand that talent is part of that, but I also want to understand that they are people that are, are going to be coachable, okay, people that they have a drive to be great, and that they're we over me people. So those are those are three things that we really look at besides the talent to make sure we fit culture. And we've, you know, cut players that were more talented than other guys because they didn't fit those three keys. You have to have your uh, non-negotiables because if, yeah. if, you if you don't have always – get nevers. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's really been a fun time talking. Of course, we have communicated on a different level because we were both high school coaches, but I enjoyed uh, listening to you and talking with you and you have my email address. So stay in touch. Will do. Let me know when you're doing one of your live events. I'll get on and I'll harass you from the seats. All right. That sounds like a plan. I will uh, keep you in touch and, uh, Actually, I'll send you an email. Uh, I'll get the best address. I'll send you a copy of my book, too. So Perfect. Okay. Thanks, Jim. Well, that was fun, wasn't it? I'm invested in your business and personal success, and I hope you found this episode of the podcast insightful. If you or your business is ready to grow, check out my website, 10 Excellence. This is the way that you do that. The number 10 
then xlenz.com. Be sure to follow me and send questions on Facebook at Arrow and Marine Tack Professionals and on Twitter and YouTube at Thomas Alston. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on our next episode.